Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Today, we are starting a new season of exploring the links between our minds and our bodies. We're going to talk with the experts who are presenting monthly webinars for the NRBS. The episodes will come out a week or two before the webinars themselves and give you a preview of what you can expect to learn. Registration is free and open to everybody. Today's guide is Dr. Fred Schaefer, a biological psychologist, professor of psychology at Truman State University in Utah, and the director of Truman's Center for Applied Psychophysiology. His numerous awards include the 2019 Distinguished Scientist Award from the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback. Dr. Schaefer is a prolific author and sought-after speaker and teacher. He's also the current president of AAPB. On November 14th, he will talk with NRBS about recent advances in neuroscience. I asked him about that and how our growing knowledge about the brain can help us live better lives. In the upcoming NRBS webinar, you're going to be discussing some recent advances in neuroscience and our understanding of the brain. And I'm sure there's a lot more than you'll be covering in the talk or that we can even cover here. Uh, but I'm, I'm sort of interested what in the advances that strike you as particularly important. I think that one of the most exciting findings is our understanding of depression has profoundly changed. Uh, when uh, physicians talk to their patients about depression, they usually work within the model of uh, transmitter imbalance. Uh, we now understand that there are profound differences happening at the cellular level, uh, as in uh, the cessation of repair of uh, damaged neurons uh, by uh, molecules like BDNF, uh, as well as uh, the cessation of the creation of new neurons, uh, which we call neurogenesis. Uh, these occur particularly in the, in the hippocampus, but also in the cortex. And it is the it really is these slow changes uh, that uh, may span three to eight weeks or longer uh, that may underlie the response to psychotherapy, uh, neurofeedback, biofeedback, in uh, medication. The thing about neurotransmitter imbalance is that you actually correct that within 24 hours with your medication. And yet the person's still depressed uh, for easily up to eight weeks. So there have to be more profound and uh, slower changes occurring. Uh, so that's one of the findings. So I know recently a uh, review article came out which really questioned, well, didn't question, but really uh, pro provided a lot of evidence that the so-called serotonin imbalance theory of depression really doesn't have a lot of support behind it. And this is this has been a uh, an issue within psychiatry. I mean, I remember many years back when Prozac first came out hearing a lecture and they were so 
happy about the results that they were suggesting it should be put into the drinking water, which which luckily <laughs> has not happened, uh, although it's ending up in our drinking water in other ways, I suspect. Yes. Um, so, so what you're saying is it's, it's not so much a neurotransmitter or kind of a chemical imbalance per se, but something is interfering with repair and creation of neurons, particularly in the hippocampus, yes. but also in the yes. cortex. Yes. Do we have any idea what that might even be? We do. There are good data that when patients experience uh, chronic stress, uh, one response can be elevation in cortisol. Now, there are circadian fluctuations in cortisol, and cortisol isn't uh, the villain of the piece, but rather say that when you have high sustained cortisol levels because of chronic uh, stress, that this can both interfere with the uh, production of BDNF, which is one of those neurotrophins that protect and help repair. Uh, and then, of course, the, it in, interferes with the uh, creation of new neurons. Uh, I'd go even a step farther and say that one of the uh, symptoms of uh, depression uh, can be insomnia. And if, in fact, you're experiencing significant sleep disruption and uh, fragmentation, it's very likely that you will not uh, have a normal sleep architecture. And that particularly the first half of your night, you may not uh, spend much time in stage three, what we call slow wave sleep. Now, let me tell you why that's important. There are really two things about that. Number one, it is during uh, the first part of the night in stage three sleep that you uh, release uh, the bulk of your uh, growth hormone, uh, which is absolutely necessary for repair. So that's the first piece. Uh, and this is why people who are called elderly, who uh, hopefully are at least 10 years older than I am, uh, because of their fragmentation, may spend very little time. In, by age 90, uh, which is uh, a few decades away from where I am, uh, you may spend zero time uh, in uh, slow-wave sleep. Uh, and therefore, uh, secrete very little growth hormone during that time. Uh, another piece, during slow-wave sleep, you do most of the clearance of waste uh, between neurons. Uh, we now know in 2022, and actually knew about in 2021, that the lymphatic system extends to the brain. There is, in fact, a, it's called a glymphatic system. And the big point here is that the most clearance occurs during stage three sleep. And so if you're missing stage three sleep, you're not clearing these wastes and you are promoting uh, neurodegenerative disease. So insomnia is a symptom of depression. 
and it sounds like it could act almost like a, a as a uh, forward or as a positive feedback loop to create more depression. Now, it's yes. also fairly well understood that at this point, we are just sleeping less than we were 10, 15, 20 years ago. So, of course, raises yes. the question, is the lack of sleep also a causal factor in depression? It's both the cause and effect. Uh, the pandemic, uh, interestingly, the pandemic has led to uh, students, and here I'm thinking about high school, middle school students, actually getting more sleep because they don't have to get up uh, to ride in a bus. Uh, on the other hand, for adults, we've lost our time anchors. We've lost uh, our routines. Uh, and as a result, uh, sleep is uh, harder to achieve. And of course, with the pandemic and with the uh, economy, uh, we are facing multiple crises, polycrises, as it's been called, and this can interfere with sleep. Uh, it's hard uh, to uh, to transition to sleep if you're worrying about paying the bills or if you're worrying, worried about safety. And so sleep as as a entity among its uh, unto itself, but also a an effect of chronic stress. Yes. Uh, kind of going back to the, I guess, the more psychoanalytic or psychodynamic uh, ideas of what is driving depression. So long-term stress or chronic stress will make sleep problematic, will increase chronic levels of cortisol, right. which interferes with um, neuro neurogeneration and repair. Are there any other factors within from chronic stress besides the uh, higher levels of cortisol that may impact depression or other mental health issues? Well, certainly from the standpoint of heart rate variability, high levels of stress can uh, be translated into higher heart rates and lower heart rate variability. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Uh, I think of heart rate variability as a fine, allows us to fine tune uh, our regulation of our mind body. So a homeostasis. When you are dealing with chronic stress, it lowers heart rate variability. And now you, instead of regulating, are dysregulating. Uh, as a consequence, there is more inflammation. As a consequence, there may be more uh, chronic pain, just as two examples. I don't want to overstate the importance of heart rate variability, but we know that lowered heart rate variability is a significant risk factor for all-cause mortality, uh, for uh, diabetes, for cardiovascular disorder, uh, for blood pressure, for depression, for anxiety, so that it's extremely important. Yeah, and we certainly know that heart rate variability is a, I mean, there are plenty of studies showing that it can be a marker for, like you're saying, depression, anxiety, PTSD, all sorts of uh, health issues, which, again, kind of seem to relate back to this chronic stress yes. and poorer ability of the brain to regulate itself or keep itself repaired or keep itself 
I don't want to quite say alive, but almost almost that. It's certainly that viable. And, and there is a tie-in here. Uh, when we look at what strategies do people use uh, to deal with the consequences of chronic stress, that ties into one of the topics that I will be discussing, which is addiction. Uh, people will modulate their emotional states, uh, their anxiety, their depression, uh, by using drugs uh, like heroin or uh, alcohol or uh, cannabis. And often this does not end well. Uh, so that uh, instead of dealing with one problem, you're uh, dealing with comorbidities in a more complex uh, clinical picture. So clinically, it complicates an already complicated picture when you add an addiction in. I'm also wondering, though, what impact the addiction might have on the neurology, on the brain itself. Is there a relation between addiction and cortisol or addiction and neurogenesis or neural repair? Yes, there is. Depending on the drug you're using, uh, and alcohol is a good uh, example, uh, you actually, alcohol, uh, the Certainly, uh, the CNS stimulants like cocaine, uh, amphetamine, methamphetamine will interfere with neurogenesis. They will halt it in its tracks. And it's only when people clean up and withdraw from their drugs successfully that it resumes. Is that because of increased corticolamines? Very Does possibly. It... One of the pathways would be increased stress hormones. So yes, I mean, one of the consequences of becoming dependent on a drug are the repercussions when you aren't able to get your next fix. And that can be a major stressor. And then when you think about the consequences of substance use disorder in a person's lives, uh, job, relationships, problems with the law, financial problems, you have to finance the habit uh, this all increases uh, your stress load. So more positive feedback. Exactly. Yes. It's a reactor heading for a meltdown. And of course, it's not just the individual, but that anxiety, that stress is contagious. It, it, it affects oh, family. Yes. It affects colleagues. It affects friends. So, so we're... we're we're living in a world which is uh, sounds sounds a bit like it, there's a positive feedback loop for chronic stress. Oh yes. And uh, where where's it going to end? <laughs> Perhaps we sh we shouldn't answer that question quite yet. Um, but that does that does actually raise the question of what role do we have to play here as clinicians, particularly as clinicians who are focused on biofeedback and neurofeedback and psychophysiology. I think it informs the way we assess patients. Uh, it, it informs what we look for. It helps us understand the deep relationships between stress, insomnia, substance abuse, and so forth, uh, the symptoms they present. It reminds us that uh, stress management is needed uh, more than ever at this, this time. One of the consequences of 
uh, a pandemic has been uh, isolation. And we know that loneliness is a serious risk factor for a whole range of disorders, uh, including anxiety and, and depression. It also reminds us of the tools we have, that if we understand that loneliness and isolation uh, are significant threats, then we try to, in our interventions, to uh, improve the quality of a person's connections. Uh, we understand that we're social beings and that this is part of our healing and part of our strength as, as communities. It means that we look at biofeedback and neurofeedback as tools uh, to give to our patients so that they have alternatives to using drugs. Doesn't mean that they'll use it in place of drugs, but it may allow them to rely more on these uh, skills. So it's skills as opposed to pills. And, and I'm absolutely not saying that there isn't a role for medication in managing uh, depression. Uh, I'm rather saying that I'd like to give patients a whole range of constructive options, especially because we know that depending on the severity of depression, antidepressants uh, may be no better than placebo, uh, because we suspect that for some patients, their uh, lifetime prognosis might have been better if they had never been started uh, on an antidepressant. This is still controversial, and it, it, it goes down. You have to approach it from an individual differences perspective in the sense there will be patients who needed the drugs and whose uh, prognosis was better and they're still alive because of the drugs. There are others uh, who may have done better without the drugs. And we don't have the tools uh, to decide who those people will be in advance. There might be a little disagreement with that if you hang around with the uh, the QEEG people. Um, you know, there is some research suggesting that uh, some of the phenotypes can can help predict response to some of the uh, antidepressants as well as some of the stimulants. But as you're saying, that that perhaps is a discussion for another day and and another place. It's a it is a nuanced discussion. You always have to ask the question. How accurate is your classification? How, what percentage of the time do you get it right when you assign someone uh, to a phenotype? Uh, and I'm not sure what the precision is. I find it an intriguing approach. I believe that it needs to be further explored. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that uh, the that if we were doing a, a double-blind classification, that uh, we'd be nowhere near 90% accuracy uh, in assignment. I'm sure that's true, but it seems also that that's true about our current approach to deciding on medications. Our current approach uh, is, uh, is disappointing. I mean, it, the current approach is far less rational and far less uh, evidence-based uh, than what 
my colleagues who use the QEG do. I mean, I have a great deal of respect uh, for that uh, line of inquiry. It's a more rational approach. We've been talking a lot about neuroscience and psychophysiology, but I actually want to shift gears for a minute. In addition to all of your scientific and academic work, you're also involved in the professional side of our field and currently as president of the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback. Now, many of our audience are interested in biofeedback and neurofeedback, uh, either as practitioners or consumers. What would you say is the importance of organizations like AAPB or, or NRBS, either as professionals or as members of the public? You obviously don't need to convince us, like, like you, I'm involved, I'm on the board of both AAPB and NRBS, but what would you say to our listeners to get them to consider being more involved with the organizations? I tend to, first of all, be a supporter of uh, all of the major organizations. So I would expand our list uh, to our uh, friends at uh, ISNR, for example. I think that one of the driving forces for being a member of any of these organizations is they provide us with a sense of community. It, these are opportunities for networking. Uh, I have been a guest at uh, ISNR, I've been a guest at NRBS, and you see the rich uh, network of friendships, uh, sometimes decades long friendships uh, that you're able to strengthen uh, every time you're able to get together. So the first thing is network, there's strength in community. And the nice thing about all these organizations is they make you feel welcome. You do not have to be an expert in the field. You can be uh, someone who's just joining the field and you're made to feel just as welcome and important. This is a superpower that NRBS in APB and ISNR have. Uh, another thing is that these organizations provide educational opportunities so that we can support our members uh, through their lifelong learning, not just for, for uh, continuing education uh, to maintain uh, a certification or a license, but because our members really want to learn and they want to grow. And, and so the organizations can help them on their journey. Often some of the uh, cutting edge information will be presented at conference. And that's exciting. Uh, and then in between annual meetings, you have uh, webinars, you have workshops uh, that make membership so valuable. One of my roles as uh, AAPB president uh, is as uh, co-education chair. Uh, Ina Hazan, who we both have a great fondness for, is my co-chair. Uh, and we believe that education is one of the most important things we can offer our members. Uh, as president, I'm always thinking about what type of member benefits can we offer? What do our members need? What do they want? what's within our capacity to provide. And fortunately, there are many member benefits. Let me give you one example. 
And this ties you in and me and Ina. And that's the uh, upcoming, as in probably spring publication, of evidence-based practice in biofeedback and neurofeedback. It is now coming into its fourth edition. Ina Hazan uh, has been the lead editor. You are part of that editorial staff, and it's all but printed. Uh, this is something we do to uh, help the field uh, and to support our members. I consider it a very important member benefit. And I, I would just echo what you said that, uh, you know, I, I'm a clinical psychologist and I was a research psychologist before that. And so for the last mm -hmm. uh, 30 plus years, I've been involved in many different professional organizations, American Psychological Association, Society for Research mm -hmm. and Child Development, Massachusetts Psychological Association. And I have to say that the, the community that I found at AAPB and ISNR has been absolutely the most generous and welcoming uh, you know, if you go to a conference, you're, you're almost guaranteed that someone like Eric Pepper will sit down and talk at you for three hours and you'll love every minute of it. Um, <laughs> when, he, when that first happened to me, I thought I was special or something, but no, he does that with everyone. It, well, you it, are special, but Eric has a gift at drawing people in and he has another gift. I have spent, Eric is one of my mentors. Uh, when I began in the field around 1977, I attended the Biofeedback Institute of uh, San Francisco. This was George Fuller von Basie's operation. It was an old Victorian mansion in San Francisco. Eric was one of the instructors. Uh, over the years, he and I hit up a relationship. I attended some of his workshops uh, and we became colleagues. Let me tell you what Eric's superpower is. He believes in you. He, first of all, he believes in himself, but he believes in you and encourages you to get involved in research, to get involved in writing. And there are times when he'll collaborate and times you'll just do it on your own. And he has mentored so many people in the field that when I've done a informal history, an alternative history, of, uh, of American biofeedback. Uh, Eric's footprints are all over there. There are people who Eric introduced to biofeedback and neurofeedback that you never saw that connection. People like the late Chuck Strobel, for example, uh, with the quieting reflex. So uh, Eric is an extraordinary person. I've talked with Eric twice in Hong Kong to Chinese, to Chinese psychologists, uh, it was an experience. And he is just a generous host. He is, uh, I've, had, I've had the grace of spending time with Eric and his wife at their home a number of times. So yeah, Eric is a remarkable figure and he is just an example of the very friendly, warm, caring people that we find in these organizations. It's not unique to AAPB, but it is one of the uh, enduring strengths of AAPB. I mean, this is the family I choose. This is the family that, uh, pandemic be damned, I get together with uh, once a year. And <laughs> pray, pray hard I don't come down with COVID and knock on wood, 
Uh, I went to the last meeting last March in Irving, Texas, and I took reasonable precautions and I was fine. Well, I'd like to wrap things up with some one thing questions. Sure. So, so what is one thing you want our listeners to take away from our conversation? It's important to be a lifelong learner and to uh, keep abreast of uh, the scientific literature because it will surprise you. Let me give you an example. It was just a few years ago that we learned that the lymphatic system extended the brain. Up until about two years ago, we didn't know this. Now, there's a reason for that, and that is the vessels were so microscopic and no one really, almost no one expected to see them, and then they did. Uh, I teach physiological psychology every semester at Truman State, in part because it it motivates me to keep fresh on the literature so I can share it with my students. And so uh, I encourage our listeners uh, to, at whatever level you want to, keep reading, keep looking at news feeds that give you up-to-date information because the body nervous system uh, will astound you. Uh, There's so much left to discover. And so every, every year, actually every semester, Uh, I'm blindsided by something that I didn't expect to see. And that's exciting to me. Well, in in that vein, uh, what is one thing you've recently learned about the brain that you've applied to your own life? A wonderful question. And I have, uh, I think, a practical answer. Your audience, undoubtedly, if it watches cable and has been bombarded with commercials for products like uh, Nureva uh, to improve brain performance, uh, despite the lack of evidence of any efficacy. This is one of the things that I've learned. You don't need Nureva. You don't need the other very expensive supplements. Get aerobic exercise within your capacity. The single best thing you can do for your brain beyond good nutrition and stress management and sleeping is getting exercise that actually protects the brain against dementia and also improves its functioning. So when I see these commercials to, again, uh, pills instead of skills, my response is, take a short walk. I live uh, five minutes away from a beautiful pond. And I uh, like to take slow walks around that pond and just immerse myself uh, in the beauty around me. That will do more for my stress management, for my sleep, and also for my brain health uh, than any amount of supplements. Fred, thank you so much for joining us. And, And to the listeners, I hope we have whetted your appetite for Fred's NRBS webinar, which is on October 14th. You'll find a link to register in the show notes, or you can go to nrbs.org. And Fred, where can people go to find out more about you and your work? You know, uh, 
Certainly, if you're if we're thinking about Truman, just you can Google me, uh, Fred Schaefer at uh, you know F Schaefer at Truman.edu. I have a, a campus website, and then uh, my software company Biosource, uh, BiosourceSoftware.com. Uh, between the two, one of the things we're doing, and I know we're wrapping up, uh, is every week my collaborators and I push out uh, a very, I think, very well-written, carefully written uh, blog post. We alternate uh, weeks between neurofeedback uh, and HRV. These are not pushing product, but rather uh, are dealing with important issues uh, in both neurofeedback and HRV. And you can find them on the biosourcesoftware.com website. And I just have to throw in my my voice for the Biosource. Uh, I've used a number of the products that you've put out there to study for BCIA uh, exams. Uh, and I'm reading, I read the blog, the blogs uh, whenever they come out. It's a really great resource for our field. I also noticed that you, while you did mention the evidence-based book coming out, you failed to mention the other book that's coming out, which you have co-authored with Donald Moss. That's a primer for biofeedback, which is going to be fantastic. What, when is that coming out? Do we know? It's available right now. Oh, it is. Terrific. So uh, it, We're arranging to it on Amazon, and, and, but also through the AAPB bookstore. Right. So go to aapb.org. So our executive director, Leslie Shivers, is currently fulfilling orders uh, for the primer. And Don Moss was the principal author of the primer, and I was his co-author. I judged that the, um, the primary first author would do most of the work, so I made sure that Don assumed that role. I, th I think it often is the other way around, but that, again, is a discussion for another time, perhaps. <laughs> Well, Fred, thanks again for joining us, and I'm really looking forward to your webinar. Take care. Thank you. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was Dr. Fred Schaefer, president of AAPB, biological psychologist, and a real superstar in the world of applied psychophysiology. You can hear him talk more about recent advances in our understanding of the brain on October 14th at his NRBS webinar. It's free for everybody. You can find more information about the webinar and about Dr. Schaefer in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.